Pray with me and we'll, we'll start things. Father, uh, we're thankful. We're thankful for the children that are here and for the parents that are raising them up in your things. Thank you for that, God. That's a blessing. And uh, God, thank you that we can be here with our friends. We look around and see people that we know and that we're getting to know and stuff. God, you have been so kind to us in your church family. And so this morning, open up our ears and our hearts and our minds that uh, fills words that you prepared him with from your word that uh, we'll pay attention and that we'll go out of here uh, learning something for each one of us. You can do that, God. And so we ask you and invite you in. And thank you what you've done through your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deanie. A few weeks ago, I made the promise to the church that we would be looking at the idea of spiritual warfare, particularly through the lens of the armor of God. We're going to start that today. I've been excited since I had made that declaration to get to this sermon series. This is a very real subject, and it's one that we need to pay attention to. And certainly, we're going to get into Ephesians chapter 6, where the armor of God is listed. But before we do, we need to lay a little bit of a foundation of understanding for what we're talking about. Beginning with this, spiritual warfare is very real. As much as we might want to deny that, it is very real. Let me show you what the Bible says about it. We'll go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at the passages right before the armor of God, so we're not going to go all the way through that. Ephesians 6 verse 12, the apostle Paul writes these words, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It does not get much more pointed than that in all of the Bible. We are in a fight. We are in a struggle. And it is not physical. Most of us are equipped for the physical battles of life. This one is spiritual. It is around us all the time. And we need to pay attention to it. As much as we know that the battle is real, we have some promises associated with it. Go with me to the book of Romans, would you? Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 38. Again, the apostle Paul writes these words. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now follow this promise from the apostle. Inasmuch as he would tell the church in Ephesus, the battle is real, the struggle is tangible, it is spiritual, and you need to pay attention to it, he promises us that no matter how bad it gets, we will never be separated from the love of God that we have through his Son in Jesus Christ. Translation of that, God will never leave us. In the middle of this fight... He will always be on our side. Now, the Apostle Peter would give us some descriptive language to help us understand what this fight looks like. This is found in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Doesn't that paint a vivid picture for you? Our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, 
seeking whom he can devour. That's exactly how he goes about this fight. He's trying to destroy you. He's trying to destroy your faith. He is trying to destroy your walk with God. He is trying to destroy you physically as well as spiritually. And he's good at what he does. Now we read passages like that and it creates within us an intense fear of the devil. And that should, to some extent, be there. But only to some extent. The church over the last 40, 50, 60 years has really exacerbated that idea of being afraid of our enemy when the Bible would tell us that we have God on our side and that changes the struggle. Inasmuch as there is a healthy fear, we do not have to let it so take hold in our life that we feel like we're always on the run from the devil. In fact, the Bible would teach exactly the opposite. He ought to be running from us. That spiritual warfare, when it is really hitting where it should, the devil should be running from us. Take a look at James chapter 4, verse 7. It is so simple when we really understand the way the Bible teaches this. Chapter 4, verse 7. James writes, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, listen to this, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we get down to the heart of spiritual warfare and the battle that rages all around us in the heavenly realm, what we always have to have in our mind is this idea that we're going to put the devil on the run. We don't have to run from him. He's going to run from us. And that is possible when we recognize that God is on our side. I saw a video on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that illustrates the way this works beautifully. Watch this, would you?
Now that's a great picture of what the Bible is trying to describe to us, from what our battle looks like to what the victory looks like. For many of us, we can associate a great deal with that little bear cub. We're on the run all the time from the enemy. But the Bible says the time comes when you need to quit running and plant your feet on the ground and take a stand. Paul will say at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, when you have all of the armor of God in place, you take a stand. You stay there and you commence to roar in and realize that the one who is behind you is greater than the one that is in front of you. And when we recognize that, the battle is already ours. Now, we can understand all of that as we go into the whole idea of spiritual warfare, but there are still some things that we need to do that help us win the fight, beginning with the gathering of information about our enemy. The greatest strategist in the world would tell you that reconnaissance, the gathering of information, is necessary if you are really going to experience victory. I have a couple quotes I'll show you that illustrate that really well. The first one comes from Sun Tzu, the author of the book, The Art of War. I want you to take a look at what he says. Now, the reason the enlightened prince and the wise general conquer the enemy whenever they move and their achievements surpass those of ordinary men is foreknowledge. The guy who wrote the book, The Art of War, some would tell you the greatest strategist to ever live, says that you need to know your enemy. It requires some advanced training, some advanced study. Now, you know where that came from, but pay close attention to where I found it. I lifted it off of the homepage for the Central Intelligence Agency, those that are always gathering information those that are always doing reconnaissance. They actually quoted Sun Tzu. Now, here's another one for you. This one comes from Alan Pinkerton. He was the head of the Union Intelligence Agency. Some would say he was the father of our modern secret service. Pinkerton has really allowed himself or had allowed himself to rise to the top in the intelligence world long before we even knew there was an intelligence world. Listen to what he says. Vice may triumph for a time. Crime may flaunt its victories in the face of honest toilers. But in the end, the law will follow the wrongdoer to a bitter fate, and dishonor and punishment will be the portion of those who sin. Pinkerton believed that you should study your enemy to the utmost so that you can bring about the victory that you long for. And those that have been involved in sin will experience the punishment that they should experience for the choices that they have made in life. But according to Pinkerton, it may require a good long while of study. But in the end, good triumphs over evil. There are a group of people in Afghanistan a couple of weeks ago that experienced that truth in the biggest of ways when the United States of America dropped what is referred to as the mother of all bombs on a bunker where ISIS forces had gathered together with Al-Qaeda forces and they were hiding and joining forces. The U.S. said, we're not putting up with it and we dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb to date, 21,000 pounder, fell on them and it destroyed the entire bunker. The reports that came back to us in the United States said that they had been planning that attack for weeks, if not months. They knew where the enemy was at. They wanted to make the best surgical strike they could, and they did. They had done their homework. They had figured out who the enemy was, where the enemy was, and they figured out how to take the fight to them. 
Well, in spiritual warfare, we do exactly the same thing. We have to know who our enemy is. And thankfully, the Bible helps us understand that. One of the things that we know about the devil or about Satan is that he has great power. But you may not understand exactly how great that is until you get into the Word of God. Let's go to the book of 1 John. There are three letters at the end of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. They were written by the Apostle John. There's also the Gospel of John written by the same person. We're in the letters of John right now, the first one. Chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking of Christians, John says, We know that we are from God. Speaking of Satan, he says this, And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Currently, under God's blessing or God's allowance, permission, if you will, Satan is called the God of this world, and he has control of everything. That is not happening outside of God's providence. God knows it's going on. He is called the God of this world. As a result of that, even Christians are going to have some struggles. Jesus himself would lay that out for us in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, fourth book of the New Testament. Jesus says in chapter 16, the 33rd verse, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is a promise for every believer. Even though the God of this world is turned loose and he is doing what he's doing, we are going to struggle against that, but Jesus has overcome the world. Therefore, the victory is ours. But that is not true. Listen to this. That is not true for the people outside of Christ. For the non-Christians, they do not have the same power nor the same promise. I'm going to take you to the book of 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. I want you to see this for yourself, so I'll give you just a second to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writes these words to the church, speaking of non-believers. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from being able to see Jesus to keep them from being able to see the good news of the gospel, to keep them from recognizing that the victory is available. The God of this world has that power. He has blinded people so much that he can keep them away from Christ. That's spiritual warfare at its worst. And you might say, and this would be fair, well, if that is the the truth, then why is it that I know non-Christians who are very good people They're very moral people, and they seem to be living with great blessing in their life. Well, the answer to that is very simple. As long as the God of this world can keep them living as moral people, can keep them living as good people, and can keep blessings in their life, or at least perceived blessings, then he has no concern for them whatsoever. Through those things, he keeps them distant from God. They have no real felt need for a Savior. But the closer those people get to needing a Savior, the more intense the attacks will come from the enemy. And he'll start amping things up in their lives and all around them. 
The God of this world has control of non-believers. But the good news is, Jesus has control of His children. And He is always there with us. No matter how much the devil might throw at us, He will never be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But for the non-believer, that is not the case. That is not the case. In fact, the only way that I can sum it up is this. Their reservation is in hell is solidly set in stone until they decide to let Jesus cancel that reservation. And that is his favorite thing to do. And that's how that reservation gets canceled. Jesus lets Satan know that this person is no longer yours. His reservation in hell no longer matters. He's mine. She's mine. And they are going to spend eternity with me starting today. Cancel the reservation. But boy, you got to battle your way to get there. You really do. When we understand that struggle, it allows us to fight the enemy the right way. And even for believers, we know this again from Jesus, we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to try to overcome the enemy because the enemy, even though he's not affecting our salvation, he is going to try to destroy our ministry. So he wants to keep you as distant from God as he possibly can. And one of the ways that he is very good at this is getting us to move behind locked doors. I want to show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the Old Testament, to the book of Judges, to see this. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, turn to the book of Judges with me. The Judges were military leaders that lived between the time of Joshua leading the children of Israel into the Promised Land and the time of their first king, who was King Saul. God's intention was to keep the Hebrew people living under his reign. He never wanted them to have an earthly king. He would be their king and they would be his people and it would have been this perfect system. But the people couldn't live with that. So they cried out over and over and over again, give us a king like everybody else has. We want to be like everybody else. So finally God relented and he allowed them to have a king. His name was Saul and the history of Israel and Judah was a train wreck after that. Well, between the time of Joshua leading them into the promised land and King Saul coming, the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jews, had their own problems as well. They would live for a while obedient to God, and then they would become disobedient to God, and their disobedience would get very bad, and the consequences would get extreme. So one of the judges would have to rise up to deliver them from the consequences of their actions. The book of Judges details 12 of those people. Now, let me just say this real quick, especially the fathers. If you are raising little boys in your home and you want them to fall in love with the Word of God, you take them to the book of Judges. You will share stories with them that will inspire their hearts and move their imagination to places that it could not go without it. It is one of the greatest books in all of the Bible. The accounts that are there are remarkable, especially for little boys. You see, it's in the book of Judges under the story of Ehud that we learn about an exorbitantly fat man dying while sitting on a toilet when his enemy comes in and runs a sword into his belly and the rolls of fat roll down over the top of the knife and he falls off of the toilet and dies in the bathroom. What little boy doesn't love that? What 48-year-old little boy doesn't love that? I love that story. We'll get into the account of Deborah when Deborah 
One of the the ladies working with Deborah lures the enemy of God into her tent and takes a tent peg and drives it through the temple of that man, in effect, nailing him to the ground. Little boys love that story. Or we can go to Gideon's story, and there we read about how God selects the right people to fight on his behalf. And he does it by watching how they drink out of a creek. He tells Gideon, if you have people around you that get down on all fours and lap water up like a dog, you don't want anything to do with them. You send them home. But if they get down and pull water up to their mouth with their hand, that's the kind of man you want on your side. I use that exact same wisdom in hunting camps today. If I see people get down and lap like a dog, I send them home like that. Don't really want you in this camp, but if they pull the water up to their mouth, that's who you want to have fighting for you. Well, the book of Judges also records in chapters 13 through 16 the story of Samson. It's one that a lot of people have heard, whether you have much experience in the church or not, you've heard about Samson. Let me take you through his life, starting in chapter 13, verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. When Manoah heard that from his wife, he said, I want to have the same vision. I want to have the same experience. So he started pleading with God that he might experience the same thing his wife did. And God granted him his request. The angel came back to him, told him exactly what he had told his wife, exact words. Manoah eventually said to this person that he believed was an angel before him, let me build an altar and make sacrifices to you. And the angel said, if you're going to sacrifice, you sacrifice to the Lord. What Manoah didn't know is that he was talking to the angel of the Lord, which in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ. He was talking to Jesus. Jesus said, you make sacrifices to the Lord. And Manoah did, and Samson was born, and no razor touched his head, and he grew in physical strength as well as spiritual strength, and that spiritual strength meant that at times God's power would come to rest on him, and when it did, Samson was able to do things that nobody thought possible. Well, as he grew up, he found a woman among the Philistines that he fell in love with, and he wanted to marry her. So he went back to his dad and said, I have found this woman in the Philistine camp and I want her to be my wife. And Manoah said, can't you find somebody that lives around us, one of our people? Manoah didn't know that God was prompting Samson to do this because he wanted to give Samson an inside track to the Philistines. So this was happening under God's prompting. And Samson said, no, I love this one. She's the one I want to marry. So his parents said, well, take us to her. We want to meet her. On the way there, something pretty remarkable happened. Chapter 14, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Killed a lion with his bare hands. That lion will become an intricate part of Samson's story in just a minute. They went on into the region of Timnah, and Samson's mother and father met this young woman, and they said, all right, you have our blessing. Let's go ahead and get you guys married. So they went to get her, and, and fellas, I, I know that you'll wish this verse of Scripture could be removed from the Bible. I want you to see what Samson did. Chapter 14, verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. The men used to cook. Oh, oh. I'm telling you, they're just messing with God's plan. That's all this was. So Samson's making a meal, and his parents bring her back, and they have a big feast and a beautiful wedding ceremony, and the two get married. As a result of that, Samson makes 30 good friends among the Philistines. They stand beside him in the wedding. He lives among them, but they are not very sharp. So he messes with their mind on a regular basis. Samson likes to tell them riddles. And as he was walking along the road one day, he saw the carcass of that lion that he had killed, and he happened to see bees flying out of the carcass. So he looked inside and saw that the bees had built a comb in there, and he reached in and pulled some honey out of the comb, and he ate it. When he went back to his 30 friends, he told them a riddle about what had happened to see if they could solve the riddle, and they couldn't. They were completely perplexed by it. Samson had been telling them riddles forever, but this one had a financial cost to it, and they did not want to lose. So they went to his wife ask her if she would help them solve the riddle. And the problem with marrying somebody from the enemy's territory is they're more loyal to the enemy than they are to you. And that was the case in this situation. So she found out from Samson what the answer to the riddle was, and she told the 30 men what the answer was. They came back and told Samson. Samson got real upset, but in the process, he said one of the greatest things in all of the Bible. I love this. Chapter 14, the last part of verse 18. And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just funny. Tina and I were talking about it yesterday. She said, that is just funny. So ladies, it's okay to laugh at that. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Samson got really upset, extremely upset. He left his wife. We don't know how long he was gone. We just know that he left. Took off on a, a good quality pout. Chapter 15 tells us what he was doing while he was mad, shows us that in his anger there were some highs and there were some lows, and those of you that have wrestled with anger issues know exactly what that looks like. The problem was he didn't tell his wife he was coming back. So her father said, your husband has abandoned you and you're left here. I don't know what else to do. So he gave her to his best man as his wife. When Samson came back, he was furious absolutely furious. And he lashed out at the Philistines in his anger. I want to remind you that the Bible says that anger is not a sin, but in your anger do not sin. Samson sinned. In his anger, he sinned. And I want to throw this little aside in as well. Speaking to the married couples, if you have not built a healthy mechanism for conflict resolution, you be careful that you don't make the same mistake where you have a fight and one of you disappears and you don't tell the other person when you're coming back. That leaves them at home stewing in their own juices, wondering if you're coming back, wondering what's going on, wondering where you went. It is a vicious practice. 
Don't let it make its way into your marriage. If you need to cool off, you tell your husband or wife, I'm going for a walk, I'll be back in an hour. I'm going for a drive, I'll be back in three hours. And you move heaven or earth to make sure that you get back in that amount of time and resolve the conflict. Samson's problem was they didn't resolve the conflict. And in his anger, he sinned, got very upset. That sin, when it took root in his life, caused horrible things to happen. Chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now listen to verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Delilah would cause Samson great harm and great grief. The end of his life, after paying all the price of that harm and grief, he would find the grace of God again. But it would be a tough, tough journey. And all of that journey began when Samson went behind closed doors. Locked gates. You see, he went into the city of Gaza, a place he should not have been, to do something he should not have been doing. He went to be with a prostitute. That's exactly what the Bible says. He went to be with a prostitute. And the enemies of God knew that he was there, so they set a trap. They locked the gates, and they expected that they were going to jump on him. Now we read in the midst of this story that at midnight he woke up and he walked out of the city and he ripped the gates off of the hinges. In fact, he ripped up the doorpost and he carried him to the top of the hill as if to say to the Gazites, you have no power over me, you have no control over me. He was boasting on something that he should not have been boasting about because Samson should have never been behind the locked doors. When we find ourselves in the midst of spiritual battle, one of the first things that we have to ask is, have we walked behind the gates that we should have not walked behind? Are we in a place that we should not be? Because if the gates are locked and the trap is set for us, you don't have the same power that Samson did. And when that trap springs on you, you are more than likely caught in it. And spiritual warfare is raging. God locks gates for us. The enemy puts gates up and tries to invite us through them. And God says, don't go there. He'll lock those gates, but we find our way through them. And when we go through locked gates and get into places that we should not be, spiritual warfare is only going to escalate. So stay away from the locked gates. Make sure that you keep your distance from them because that's dangerous on the other side. It's a horrible place to be. And it causes grief and pain and harm, not only in your life, but in your ministry. So stay on the right side of the locked gates. You don't have to stay there out of fear. You have to stay there out of wisdom. It's not because you're afraid of the enemy. It's because you're smart enough to know not to go there. That's why the gates are locked. Respect them. Make sure that you don't cross them. Because when you cross them, you are in the enemy's territory. Sadly enough, in modern Christianity, the churches have been teaching people not to worry about the gates. You go on in there and you get into other cultures and you do things that you know might not be right because you might have impact on somebody. Churches have been teaching people in unbelievable new ways that they need to not worry about the gates and just go. Well, my friends, that is not what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible teaches that when the gate is locked, you stay on the right side of it. And don't let anything take you inside. Not out of fear, but out of wisdom. Peter would actually write about this type of thing, and I can't help but wonder if he didn't have Samson's story in mind when he wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What Peter is teaching is that holiness is the spiritual protection that we need. And please understand, holiness is not a condition, it is a pursuit. It is a pursuit of wanting to live the way God wants you to live. Holiness is the pursuit of trying to be Christ-like. And that means at times respecting locked gates, not walking through them because the danger on the other side is too intense. So you stay on the right side because that's what holiness does. Peter uses terms like sober-minded. Some translations say self-controlled. Neil Anderson describes self-control this way. He says, A self-controlled person is one who is allowing his mind to be shaped by the truths of God, not by the prevailing culture in which they live. A self-controlled person is one who is allowing their mind to be shaped by the truths of God, not by the prevailing culture in which they live. The self-controlled person respects the locked gates. They don't do it out of fear. They do it out of the wisdom of holiness. I would offer that the self-controlled person knows how to ask the right questions in their lives. Questions that keep them on the right side of the gate. Questions that keep them from ever walking through the gate into the enemy's territory. Questions that cause the enemy to come looking for them, not them going to look for the enemy. And there is a big, big difference. Here's what some of those questions might look like. There's just five of them. Number one, is this thought going through my mind and heart from God or Satan? If we can answer that one and we say that the thought is from God, then you continue on that path. But if it's from Satan, you stay away from it. Question number two, can I do this and still stand before God with confidence? Do you realize what a stopper that is? If you cannot boldly say that I can do what I am thinking about doing and stand with confidence before God, then don't do it. You just don't do it. Because that will compromise holiness. Number three, am I about to do something that will cause God to grieve? Number four, am I only concerned with what I can get away with or am I concerned about living a holy life? Now, if we put all of those things in place, we are adequately prepared for battle. But there is a fifth step that we do need to pay attention to. Look at this one. Is the person I am with right now making me want to stand my ground or are they causing me to want to surrender? Sometimes in spiritual battle, in spiritual warfare, we have to change our associations because we're with people that are taking us down a path that is compromising holiness. So we have to ask ourselves, am I surrounded by people that are helping me grow or am I surrounding myself with people that are causing me to surrender? When we get all of those things in place and we are choosing holiness and righteousness, we have positioned ourselves in such a way that when the enemy comes after us, we can stand our ground and make him run instead of us. And God will be the one behind us that is roaring, letting him know that the one that is behind us is greater than the one in front of us, and we already have the victory. We have to remember that it is not fear that drives us in spiritual battle. It is wisdom and the strength of God. 
Let me leave you with just a story to illustrate one of the traps that we have to avoid. A counselor was talking with a man later on in life that had made some decisions that he, he regretted a great deal. When he was young, he felt called to the mission field. His wife had felt that exact same call, so they together made the decision to go to Bible college and start studying to be a missionary. And Things were going pretty good until their kids started having nightmares. And he believed, probably rightly so, that a lot of those nightmares were coming because of the choices that he had made to move into the mission field. So as they intensified, he had made the decision to say, I am not going to put my children in harm's way. I don't want this for them. So he left the school he was in. He left his call to ministry, and he chose a whole other path. And later in life, he was regretting that. So he'd gone to this counselor, and the counselor made this statement to him. You thought you were doing the right thing. You thought you were putting your children in a safe place by removing them from that influence, but you didn't. The man said, what are you talking about? Nightmares stopped. What are you talking about? The man said, in that moment, you made an agreement with Satan. He said, I didn't make an agreement with Satan. And the counselor said, certainly you did. He said, you were saying to Satan, you are the strongest power I know of on this earth, and I do not want to stand up to you. So if you'll leave my children alone, I will leave you alone. The counselor said, Satan will shake hands on that agreement every time. But the problem is he is a liar and he will never uphold his end of the bargain. That's good teaching. It really is. You be careful the agreements that you make with the enemy. You stand firm. You don't let anything move you and God will be right there with you. As we get into spiritual warfare in these coming weeks in the armor of God, you'll see how the individual pieces come together to help us through the struggles that are real. They exist all around us.